also John 12. John 12 is where we are. That's where we've been for the last couple of weeks. This morning we're going to finish John 12. And that's significant because it, it, uh, it is the end or the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry. Once we turn the page out of John 12 and into John 13 next week, uh, Jesus will really be involved in just a couple of things. He'll be involved in the private instruction of his disciples. We'll see that in 13 through about 16. In 17 we see Jesus' intercession for his disciples and all of us, for those who would follow. And then we see him sacrificing his life, which is exactly what he said would happen in the text we studied last week. Remember last week, Jesus, uh, he has these Greeks that come to him and they say, we'd like to see Jesus. And that sets off sort of a a signal. It's a marker in Jesus's head. And he says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And I think for the people that were standing around, they would have thought that meant thrones and armies and, you know, like trumpet flares and all of this stuff. But Jesus goes on to say that what that means, the hour of his glorification, he draws a direct line between his glorification and his sacrifice, his death. He says, unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it cannot produce much fruit. And he talks about the fact that for him, glorification is directly tied to sacrifice, to giving up his life. And he not only talks about that for himself individually, but he also says that for all of us who would follow him, who would serve him. Once he said these things about the glorification of himself, he he actually looks at the people eventually and says at the end of that text, you know, you need to walk in the light while you have the light. You need to follow where the path leads you while it's illuminated because otherwise there's a day coming when darkness will overtake you and you won't know where you're going. So he says, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And then in verse 36, it says, Jesus hid, the, hid himself from them. We've seen him do that a couple of places in the Gospel of John, that after he delivers a message, he sort of disappears. I don't know if he ducks behind a curtain or he just hunches behind a bush or I'm not sure how he does it. But Jesus disappears almost as if to physically illustrate the fact that they will not always have him in their physical presence delivering sermons and doing miraculous signs like this. John chapter 12 verses 37 through 50 are essentially John, the writer of the book, it's his summary report of the public ministry of Christ. And I'll tell you, as we read it earlier, maybe, maybe you, you haven't really thought about it yet, but in some ways it's a very underwhelming report. It's a very underwhelming summary. You look even just at verse 37 of John chapter 12 verse 37, it says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. At the conclusion of his public ministry, when John is trying to give us, the reader, a sense of all that had occurred because of his public ministry among people, his ministry both of teaching and his ministry of performing signs, he says, though Jesus had done all of these things and he performed all these things, the people wouldn't believe. The people didn't believe. He, he turned water into wine and he healed the blind and he healed the lame. Most recently, he caused Lazarus to be resurrected from the dead. And despite the fact that he taught these things, despite all that he had done and said, the people didn't believe. And it, it feels a little bit like something went wrong, doesn't it? Is this failure? Is this a mistake? Has God screwed it up here? Is the, is the whole ministry of Jesus come off the rails a little bit? And so Jesus, excuse me, John is going to go on not only to show us man's reaction, but he's going to show us God's rule in the midst of that. You know, a few years ago, actually, gosh, probably 
13 years ago or so, uh, my son, Jack, was having a birthday. He was just a little guy. I think he was in like first grade or whatever. And uh, we decided we were going to plan a surprise for him for his birthday. And so what we worked, we were living at Hume Lake at the time. And what we put together is we invited my mom to come uh, from Phoenix. She lives in Phoenix. So she got a plane ticket. She comes all the way to Fresno. That You got to fly into Fresno and then drive an hour and a half up into the mountains. And so we'd begun to sort of put all these plans together to surprise my six-year-old son with the, with the arrival of his grandmother. And so we're like, hey, your birthday's coming, and we're planning something cool. And he's like, you are? And we're like, yeah, it's going to be awesome. And he's like, what's it going to be? And we're like, we can't tell you. It's going to be a surprise. And he's like, I can't wait to know what my surprise is, you know? And uh, so we get the whole thing set up. On the morning of his birthday, he's going to school. And I said, hey, when you come home from school today, we'll have your surprise for you. And he's like, yes! You know, so he goes to school. We go down to Fresno. We pick up my mom. We come back. Uh, I go and get him from school. And when we come back to the house, uh, my mom has sort of positioned herself inside the house ready for the big reveal, you know? And I said at, to Jack on the front porch, I'm like, are you ready for your surprise? He's like, I'm ready for my surprise, you know? And uh, then he opens the door and I'm like, surprise! And he looks at my mom and he goes, where's my surprise? Right? And uh, we, we were, I'm like, grandma is the surprise, you dummy, you know? And it was a little underwhelming, right? After all the effort we put into it, and all the lengths we went to and all the setup. Now, granted, it might have been a little bit my fault. I might have oversold it. Grandma might not be that impressive. I'm not sure which one it is. But uh, e- either way, I want you to sort of imagine for a second, Jesus, God of the universe, creator of all things, has come to the earth in the flesh. He's come to reconcile men who were lost in their sin, dead in their sin, to his Father through shedding his blood on their behalf. He's come to draw them out of the darkness and into the light. And he's not only proclaimed the truth in these incredible sermons, but he's done all these miraculous signs. And the summary of his public ministry in John 12, 37 is that though he did all these signs, the people were unimpressed. The people did not believe. The people didn't buy it. They didn't follow him. And the temptation for us, I think, is to look at that and go, man, man's reaction to the ministry of Jesus was so weak. Man's reaction was so disappointing. Man's reaction was so much less than what we would want that John then goes on not only to show us man's reaction, but in the same breath almost. And these first two points are very tightly connected. He not only shows us man's reaction, but he immediately shows us God's rule. God's rule. And the reason why he shows us God's rule is he does not want us to presume or to falsely believe that the unbelief of man thwarted God's purposes. He does not want us to look at the public ministry of Jesus and the fact that the great majority of people did not believe in him or would not believe in him and say, Jesus must have blown it or he should have tried some different tactic or he should have gone about it a different way because if he'd done it right or if he had really you know, put his mind to it, he could have got huge crowds. John is immediately wanting us to see both the man's reaction to his ministry, which was weak and underwhelming, and the fact that God is sovereign even in the midst of that response. That both are true, that man's unbelief is not a contradiction to God's purposes or thwarting of God's purposes, it is the fulfilling of God's purposes. And we get that in some sense simply by the fact that John had told us at the very beginning of the book, right? In John chapter 1 verse 11, he told us in summary at the outset that the light came into the world, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It says in verse 10 of John 1, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now here in John chapter 12, John is just reiterating for us or confirming what he told us at the beginning would occur. 
that Jesus would come to his own, that he would come to his people, and that the great majority would not receive him, would not recognize him, would not believe. Now he confirms in John 12, 37 that that's precisely what happened, that man's reaction is unbelief. But then he goes one step further to show us the, 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 the sovereignty of God, and he does that through prophecy. We've got the opportunity here to see that John, I think, has a couple of different Old Testament characters in his mind as he's relaying this summary report to us. I, I know he's thinking about Isaiah because he's going to quote from Isaiah right here. But I think additionally that, that, that John has in his mind Moses and Pharaoh. I think he has in his mind Moses and Pharaoh because of the text that he quotes and the way in which we sort of think about the hardening of men's hearts. You see, John goes on to say this. He says in 37, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. He quotes from these two key passages in Isaiah. He quotes both from Isaiah 53 and from Isaiah chapter 6, both famous prophetic passages in their own right. But he does so to illustrate to us that this is all part of God's purpose. That it's all part of God's plan. I mean, you might look at it and go, why would, if, if most of the people didn't believe in the ministry of Christ publicly, why would John even include that? Why would he say it? I mean, he says at the end of the book, in John 20, these things are written that you would believe that Jesus is the only Son of God, right? In John 20, he says the whole purpose of his writing is to create belief on the part of the reader, the part of the listener. I can tell you for a fact that one of the major objections that the Jewish people had in the first century to believing in Jesus as the Messiah was the fact that most of the Jewish people didn't think he was the Messiah. The fact that it was only a small percentage of people who actually put their faith in him. But what John is telling us here is not only man's reaction. He's not only saying man reacted in unbelief, but he's saying that was part of God's plan. God still is sovereign. God is in, he is in authority. He still rules even in light of man's reaction. He does that through these texts. The first text that he gives us, this quote from Isaiah, is found in Isaiah 53, a famous messianic passage. In Isaiah chapter 53, I want you to see it in its whole context here. The beginning part that he quotes to us says, who has believed in what God has said? And who has trusted in his outstretched arm and the the powerful arm? He's saying, "Who, who has believed in both what you've said and what you've done? It says in Isaiah 53, one and following, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. What Isaiah is saying is that the people have not believed in what God has said, and they have not trusted in what God has done with his mighty arm, because when they look at Jesus... They cannot honor or respect him in his lowliness. The way their lives are oriented caused them to reject Jesus because it's not what they anticipated and it's not what they want. Jesus is humble. It says he came and he wasn't much to see. 
Isaiah says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Well, this isn't what people wanted in a Messiah. It wasn't what people wanted in a leader. It wasn't what they wanted in a military campaign. They didn't want someone who washes the feet of his disciples. They didn't want someone who would say, it's time for me to be glorified, and the way I'm going to be glorified is by laying down my life and inviting all of you to lay down your lives as well. They wanted a a military leader. They wanted someone boastful. They wanted someone powerful. And so it says the people, in, in 1237, it says the people did not believe, or in the NIV it says they would not believe, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's because what they wanted and who he was didn't match up. They did not esteem him in his lowliness. They did not respect him or honor him because he wasn't much to look at, because he was different than what they anticipated. But John will go one step further. He'll not only tell us that the people wouldn't believe because they could not esteem him in his lowliness. He'll actually go on to say in verse 39 that the people could not believe. And that's a little more troubling for us, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to say the people saw him and they heard him. They saw the miracles that he'd done and they wouldn't believe. Because that's, that's all about man's choice, right? Man has the choice to believe or not to believe and the vast majority of them in the midst of his public ministry rejected Christ. We, we don't mind that idea that they would not believe. But the moment we come to a verse like verse 39 where John, again, is talking about the rule of God in the midst of the reaction of man, when it says they could not believe, we start to get a little nervous, don't we? start to get a little tense because now it sounds like these people didn't have a choice now it sounds like there's some sort of power operating outside of them that's determining whether or not they will believe and that makes us nervous because we like the idea of being free agents i mean we live in america where people died so that we could be free but listen to what he says here he says though jesus had done all these signs they did not believe in him So the word might be fulfilled, Lord who has believed what he's heard from us, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, therefore they could not believe. Therefore they could not believe. I want you to know here in this text that there's a progression. And it's a progression that we see represented many places in the Bible. We see a progression where people who are persistent in their choosing unbelief, people who are persistent in saying I will not believe or I do not believe, that over time there is a transition that happens. Some theologians have called it a judicial hardening, but it is that place when someone persists in saying I will not believe or I do not believe, and God does something in their heart and makes it in such a way that they cannot believe. The quote that he gives us from Isaiah chapter 6 says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. When we think about the hardening of men's hearts, our minds immediately, at least my mind, goes immediately to Pharaoh. We studied Exodus about two years ago, and when we talk about Pharaoh, we saw that it said that God had hardened his heart. But that progression is still present in the story of Pharaoh. Because what the story in Exodus tells us is that Pharaoh hardened his heart towards God. That he hardened his heart towards God. And the ultimate result was that he went from would not to could not. Jesus is giving us a warning. We are understanding a warning in this text that the same potential exists for each and every one of us. You might be someone sitting here this morning who sort of stumbles into church because you like the experience or you like the music or you're hoping I'll tell a joke or whatever. You come into this place and you sort of peripherally believe about Jesus. You sort of peripherally believe that he was probably a good guy and maybe he was God and you got sort of these, these things that are out there but you're really not willing to follow him. When he says, I want you to serve me by following me and dying to yourself, taking up your cross, giving yourself away like I will do. 
That glorification is tied with sacrifice. You hear that and you go, yeah, I don't know if I could buy that. I don't know if I believe all of this. I don't know if I believe it all. I don't think I will believe it all. Because I want to hold on to my stuff. Because I want to hold on to my life. Because I want to hold on to doing what I want to do. And so you sit at the periphery of belief. Saying, I'm not going to believe this. I won't believe it. The warning for us this morning that we see in the text, that we see throughout the scripture, is that there is a transitional point where our lives go from not wanting to believe or not choosing to believe to not being able to believe. Let's look at the Isaiah text together. It says in Isaiah chapter 6, and we'll read, um, we'll actually read Isaiah 6, 1 through 10. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is given a vision of God and his glory. God sitting upon his throne and the angels flying around him and declaring his praises. And the reaction that Isaiah has to a view of the glory of God is, I shouldn't be here. I'm a messed up kid, right? I should not be in this room. I should not be seeing this thing because I'm a bad dude. And the people I live with are bad people. We can't be looking at this. Humility is the result of his view of God. Look at what happens next in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God looks at Isaiah after Isaiah had viewed him in his holiness and in his glory. Isaiah was humbled by that. Isaiah is sanctified by the seraphim who comes with the coal and says, no, 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 your sins are atoned for. And then God says, who can I send to declare my glory? And the response of Isaiah to the holiness of God is, I want to go, I'll go, can I go, right? Let me go. And so God sends him as his ambassador. But God is very clear with him from the outset, the people will not listen to you. The people will reject you. Their eyes will be blinded. Their ears will be stopped up. Their hearts will be hardened. I'm sending you out to declare a message that will harden the hearts of people. This isn't going to be easy. God intentionally, in his purpose and in his sovereignty, sends Isaiah into a ministry. He knows he'll be rejected in. It's why later in the book of Isaiah, we hear Isaiah talk about the the work of God and call it weird, kind of. In Isaiah 28, uh, Isaiah says in Isaiah 28, 21, For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused. To do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. These are hard things for us to get. Isaiah would go, why are you sending me to people that will reject me, that will be blinded to my message, whose ears will be deaf? 
And yet what John is wanting us to understand and he points us to in Isaiah is the fact that God is in control even when people cover their eyes, even when they stop up their ears. That there is a hardness of heart that is the result of persistent rejection. That there is a moment you go from I will not believe to I cannot believe and that is what's happened to the people. It's the same thing that happened to Pharaoh, that their hearts were hard. Now, when we think about that, we get a little bit nervous, don't we? Because you start to think, well, what does this mean? Does this mean that like, God just sort of arbitrarily picks people's names out of a bowl, and he goes, ah, oh, your heart's going to be hard, and your heart's going to be hard, and your heart's going to be hard, and you're not, you're not, you're not, that he just divides people up? Well, no. No, in fact, every place in the Scripture that we see the hardening of men's heart, and we see the sovereignty of God talked about, we never see it in opposition to the will of men who are making a choice. There isn't a place in scripture where somebody's going, I want to believe. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to serve you with my whole life. I want to be yours. That he's going, nope, sorry, because I pulled your name out of the wrong bowl, right? There is no place where God rejects the faith of those who haven't first rejected him, right? This isn't God arbitrarily choosing. I used a stupid story a couple of years ago, but I'll say it to you again just to sort of help illustrate the point. I told you a couple of years ago that my heart has been hardened over, over time. My heart has been hardened by Wendy's, the fast food chain, right? And I don't mean that my arteries are clogged because I don't eat at Wendy's. Sorry, by the way, if you're like a Wendy's manager. But I, uh, I mean, just as a starting place, I don't like square burgers. I, don't li- I think that's weird. Why do that? What's the point of that square thing? I don't know. I don't like those weird yellow buns that don't taste like regular bread. I don't like the cheese. I don't like their advertising. I've had terrible customer services experience there. I didn't like those baked potatoes when that was a big thing, right? I just don't like Wendy's. And it isn't. It isn't that Wendy's has some supernatural power over me. But what has happened is that my heart has been hardened by Wendy's because who they are does not work with who I see myself as. Does that make sense? No? It's fine. Who I am, who I am is not a Wendy's guy. My life is oriented in such a way that I cannot receive Wendy's message. I don't like their method. I don't like what they produce. I don't like what they ask of me. I know this is a heavy Wendy's message, right? I'll, I'll, go, I'll go one better. I, I guarantee you, every person in this room, that there's a politician's name that I could say that your heart is hardened towards. But don't say it. It, doesn't, it could be anybody, right? All, it'd be different for everybody in the room. It's not the same politician. But it isn't that those politicians have supernatural power that they're exercising over you. It's that based on who they are and what they do and how they do it, your heart has become hardened over time. This isn't God saying your heart will be hard and your heart will be hard, but this is people whose hearts are hardened, not not because of what God has done, but because of who God is. Their hearts are hardened because of his his weakness, his lowliness and humility. Their hearts are hardened because of his message and his method, because of his requirements, because of all that he asks, their hearts have become hardened and they do not believe and then they cannot believe. John says in response... To to the public ministry of Jesus, though he did all these signs, the people did not believe in him. They did not believe, therefore, ultimately, they could not believe. They could not believe. It's very similar to what we see in Romans chapter 1, where it says everything that can be known about God has been revealed to them through nature, through mankind, and yet his wrath is revealed because they chose to worship things of their own design. They chose to worship animals and, and, and carven images made in the images of birds and flying things. And he says, so what? He has given them over to what they ask for. God has given them over to what they ask for. When we persist in saying, I will not believe, I will not believe, there is a point that comes. And this is a scary thing. There is a point that comes where you cannot believe. 
And that's heavy. Now, not only does John in this text give us man's reaction to the public ministry of Jesus and God's rule in the public ministry of Jesus, he also shows us man's reasoning. Man's reasoning. And all we have to do, go back to John 12 and read on. It says in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I want you to see these two things in juxtaposition. He says, we just read these prophecies of Isaiah, and the reason that Isaiah proclaimed the things that he did in the midst of the difficulty that he had was that he had a clear view of Christ. And it provoked a response in him. He spoke in response to what he saw. He acted and wrote and preached in response to what he saw. In response to what he saw, he was both humbled in his own person and he was immediately willing to go wherever God wanted him to go. Those reactions are a response to a clear view of God. We've talked time and time again in these services about the fact that what you need is not more Bible trivia, and what you need is not more you know, public service projects, and what you need is not another prayer meeting. What you need is a clear view of God, and that's true of all of us, that when we see him clearly, humility is provoked and service is provoked provoked that Isaiah said these things because he saw God clearly. He saw God clearly and he spoke. And then he juxtaposes that with another kind of person. He says there were people, nevertheless there were people who believed, even leaders. Nevertheless, even the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They love the glory that comes from man. They love the praise that comes from man more than they love the praise of God. Jesus has preached these messages and he's done these miraculous signs and yet the reaction of man has been unbelief. That is a part of God's sovereign purpose. Their unbelief is part of God's sovereign purpose but their unbelief is rooted in a reasoning and the reasoning is declared for us here that either they were afraid of losing their position, they were afraid of what other people would say or they cared more about the glory of man, the praise of man than they did about what God thinks. They care more about what, God, or what other people think than what God thinks. I heard a great quote this week from Virginia Woolf that says, the eyes of others are prisons. And their thoughts are cages. The eyes of others are prisons. I wonder if there are some of you here this morning who were imprisoned by the perceptions of other people. If there are some here this morning who are encaged because you're so worried about what other people will say or you're so worried what other people will do. You're so worried about losing your position or your stuff or the reputation that you've accomplished. You've got this little kingdom and you're trying to hold on to it and as a result, you don't have a clear view of God that provokes humility and action and speech but instead what you have is this little kingdom you're just trying to cling to and you're living in fear and you're living with this sort of peripheral belief. By the way, I will say that there are many people who would disagree with this but I will say I don't think here that it's talking about true believers. I think the juxtaposition here in 42 and 43 is talking about people who do not truly believe in Jesus because in verse 25 of John 12, he's already said, if you want to be my disciples, if you want to follow me, you have to give up your life. Whoever would hold on to their life is going to lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake will keep it to eternity. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if we confess, right, there's, there's a piece of this that isn't just internal belief. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So we come to John 12, and it says, Isaiah saw and spoke. There were these others, these leaders who believed, and I would put that believed in quotes. They believed kind of. They believed in a peripheral way. But they did not confess it because they were afraid of losing their position. They were afraid of what other people would say, and they cared more about the glory that comes from men than the glory that comes from God. I'll tell you this morning, I want us to take that warning on the chin. I want us to take that warning on the chin this morning, church, because I would guess that there are some of you who come here week in and week out, and you kind of believe in Jesus. You believe some things about him. You probably could go down our statement of faith on the website and say yes to all the different pillars of that statement of faith. But there is no proof of that in your life. There is no action that is provoked by that view of who God is. And I will say, I don't think that's real belief. I don't think that's saving faith. I've said it before, but I think many of us, we sort of want to, we want to hold on to our empire. We want to have our, our life, this castle. And we've got all of our plans, and we've got all of our stuff, and all of our prestige, and our goals, and our relationships. We've got all this stuff, and then what we want to do is just sort of, you know, fly a Jesus flag at the top. I don't know what that looks like. It's got like a dove on it, or maybe one of those crown of thorns. I don't know what the flag looks like. It doesn't matter, right? Maybe it's a Christian flag. You want to fly that at the top, right? Can I tell you, Jesus doesn't want to be a decoration on your castle, He doesn't want to be a flag you fly at the top of your empire. He wants to be the cornerstone and the foundation of everything else you build. And here John says in summary of the people's reasoning, he says, Isaiah saw and spoke. But there's a whole host of people who kind of believed. They sort of looked and went, yeah, this seems legit to us, but they would not confess it. And if you're here this morning and you think it's possible to operate as some kind of an incognito disciple of Jesus, to be a secret agent Christian, can I tell you there's no such thing. The Bible gives us no parameters for secret agency in discipleship. There is no place where a secret agent Christian is described. We are called to see him and speak him and live him and make him manifest in our lives. So he tells us about man's reaction. He talks about God's rule. He tells us about man's reasoning. But it doesn't finish there. He goes on to show us Jesus' response. And the end of John chapter 12, the end of his summary of the public ministry of Christ is really beautiful because for those of you who are sitting here going, man, is my heart hardened? Has my heart been hardened by God? Am I at a place where I cannot believe because I would not, I would not, I would not, and now my heart is so hardened that that's not even possible for me? I want you to find hope this morning because after John tells us that there are people who saw him and did not believe, he goes on to relay to us a summary of the message of Jesus. And it says in the verses that follow, back to John chapter 12, in John chapter 12, verses 44 and following, it says, and Jesus cried out and said. Now, it doesn't tell us who he's talking to. We don't get time, we don't get crowd, we don't get place. What we get is, Jesus spoke this message and didn't just speak it, but it says, cried out. That word that's translated cried out means to croak or to screech or to scream. What I want you to understand is that this message is coming from Jesus' guts, This is something he's deeply passionate about. It's something he wants all of mankind to get. And so in in response to man's reasoning and man's reaction, in response to God's rule, that there is real potential for people to go from would not to could not, Jesus screeches this message from his guts and listen to it. It's a repetition of things he's already articulated, but he says them again in summary. Verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. What's he saying? Believing in me is believing in the Father. 
It's the same thing. Believing in me is believing in God. Not only that, in 43, excuse me, 45, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Jesus here rearticulates his sentness, but he also says, you wanna know what God is like? You wanna know what the Father is like? I am making him manifest. I am revealing him to you. When you see me, you see the Father. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is very clear about the fact that whoever, and by the way, he says whoever, whoever believes in him will not remain in darkness. And that's a telling statement as well. I think sometimes when we think about the ministry of Jesus, we think of it as well. If you believe in him, then you get to go to heaven or you get to walk in the light or you get to be redeemed, reconciled to God. But if you reject him, then you know what? What happens to you is that you're separated from God. Spiritual death for eternity, separated from God in a place called hell, right? We go, it's one of those two options you've got to choose. Do you want to go to heaven or hell? That isn't what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that you and I get to choose between heaven or hell. Jesus and the rest of the New Testament teaches that apart from believing in Christ, darkness and eternal separation in hell is our current state. That is where we will remain. But Jesus says there is no reason that you would remain in darkness. I think the reality that Jesus is proclaiming is that even if you've said, I will not believe, I will not believe, and I will not believe, even if you've turned the corner to a place where you look at Jesus and you cannot esteem him because of his message and his method, because of his lowliness, because of his requirements, where you cannot believe anymore, no matter what the condition of your heart, what Jesus is saying is, I am the light. And if you believe in the light, there is no reason for you to remain in the darkness. That is a message for everyone, he says. What that means is that this light is available until such time as you die. We have this life in which to make decisions, to choose to to believe in Christ and to follow him or to reject him. Jesus says, if anyone hears my words, verse 47, and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. What's he saying? He's saying, if you've heard this message, then you're accountable with what you do with it. The reality is there may be some of you came into this church building this morning and you never heard that Jesus came to the earth. You never heard that Jesus came to be a substitute, to take the sin of mankind upon himself, that he came because you and I were dead and lost in our sin, separated from him, and that in his great love and in his beautiful grace, he died in our place, that he took our sin upon himself and he died on the cross and shed his blood for us. He rose from the dead and extends to us resurrection life that we don't pay for, we don't trade for. He gives it to us by his grace. The gift of resurrection life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Maybe you've never heard that before, but the reality is that sitting in a room like this and hearing a message like that, everyone who hears the word is accountable for what they do with it. There is no one who will be without excuse. Everyone who hears the truth has to do something with it. Jesus says, I'm not gonna judge you on the last day. I'm not gonna sit with the gavel and go, this person gets in or that person gets in. It will be what you do with my word. My word will be your judge. He goes on to say, 
For I have not spoken, verse 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. What's he saying there? He's saying, I'm not just coming up with this stuff myself. The Father and I are united in wanting to give resurrection life to the world. My Father and I are united in wanting to reveal ourselves and to draw men in, that all will believe and not remain in the darkness. This is something we're united in. He says, verse 50, and I know what his commandment Uh, And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is an ambassador of the Father's message with the Father's method and the Father's motive, right? So what do we see in the text? In a summary of Jesus' public ministry, we see man's reaction and we see God's rule. We see man's reasoning, but we see Jesus' response and his response is to look at us no matter how hard our heart, no matter how turned away we might feel, no matter how many times we've rejected him, he would look at us again and say, if you've heard my word, walk in the light that you would not remain in the darkness. But you can't just stay where you're at. A response is required. In hearing the truth, there is a response that we would listen. John 3, 16 through 18 says the very same thing. Famously, John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but would have eternal life. 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God's hope is to save the world. He says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The summary of Jesus' public ministry is that he screeched, he cried out in the face of unbelief, in the face of people's orientation away from him, in the face of people rejecting his method and his lowliness and, and his strategies and his words and his deeds, in the face of that rejection, he cries out from his guts and says, believe that you won't stay in the darkness. This is my Father's message. This is our message together for mankind. And that's the last we'll hear him speak to the public. And so we want to take that this morning. We want to receive it. I don't know who you are this morning. I don't know where you come from. I don't know your background. I don't know how your heart is oriented towards the lowliness of Christ, his method, his message. But the reality is that apart from Jesus, you and I will be separated from him forever in a place called hell. But because of his great sacrifice, Because of his great love, there is no reason why anyone should remain in the darkness. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I wonder if there are some of you here today who've been sort of on the periphery. Maybe those who've never believed in Jesus, you've thought about it, you've pondered it, you've wondered, but you will not believe I hope this morning that you will hear Jesus crying from his guts and saying to you, there's a point where your will not will become could not. So turn to me. In the quietness of this this moment, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I invite you to cry out to him right where you sit. Say, Jesus, will you save me from sin and death? Will you give me by your grace this resurrection life? Will you lead me out of the darkness and into the light that I wouldn't remain there? If your heart feels hardened this morning, if your heart is starting to atrophy, would you pray that God would churn up the soil of your heart and prepare it to receive the implanted word of truth that Jesus himself speaks in John 12? There may be others of you here this morning who who believe, and I'll put that belief in quotes. You know a lot of things about Jesus. You can talk the Jesus talk, 
answer all the right questions. But your life doesn't look like Isaiah, who saw God and moved. Your life looks more like these leaders who kind of believed, but cared more about the opinions of others. I wonder if the opinions of others are your cage this morning. I wonder if your desire to hold on to what you have and what you want has hardened your heart towards God. And in that case, I would say lay it down, tear it down, give it up, and turn your eyes again toward Jesus and see him, that you would be changed. God, I pray that you would move in this place and that you would stir in us a proper and worshipful response to the summary of your earthly ministry. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.